Good morning. The passage this morning is Mark 1, 1 through 11. It's Mark 1, 1 through 11. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. This is God's word. Good morning. Come on now. Come on now. Well, what a great warm welcome that was. Good morning. Hey, Crosspoint. Missed you. Missed being here. But um, I needed it. You're going to hear a little bit in our time together some things that God has done and is doing in my heart. And one of the things that I really trust God with is that the things that he's doing in me is also some things that he desires to do in us. You know, um, being a pastor... Uh, it, it's really, sometimes it can be just this always anxiety. You know, there's just always these voices that are, that are stirring around in your head that continually tell you that what you're not doing or what you are doing is not good enough. These voices that keep on going, and it's not, I don't think it's limited to being a pastor, right? I think you have life, and all of us have these voices in our life that say, you're not good enough. You're not good enough as a father. You're not good enough as a husband. You're not good enough as a friend. You're not good enough as a Christian. And those voices just come like a torrent. And for me, it's looked like this. My life has been on this low volume anxiety, and I haven't known what it means to have the volume turned down. So let's just say the volume's on a four. It's kind of like not, not that high, but it's not like a one, but it's kind of a, a, a volume that you could manage. It's a volume that you could deal with. And within that volume, you just kind of get used to it. You say, this is what life is. I just have to get used to this. And then all around you are the repeating things of this world that cause the volume to slowly rise. 
And then maybe you read a Bible verse or two, or maybe you go to a church service on Sunday, or maybe you say a prayer, and then the volume kind of turns down, but it's never really dealt with. It's still there. Well, one of the powerful experiences I had when I was in sabbatical is that the volume went down to zero. And I heard the words of Jesus, the same words Jesus heard at the end of that passage that we just read. I am the beloved son of the father with whom he is well pleased. When, I, um, when we did our first ser- service here, I, I shared an illustration about Superman. An old Superman movie. Danny's the only Superman fan here. I remember that. So thanks, Danny, for Superman. We'll watch one together one day. So, um, and I, I shared that, that, you know, Superman had just rescued this guy from a burning building. And as Superman takes this guy and carries him from the burning building and is carrying him to safety, the, the guy is holding on to Superman tightly and he's saying, don't drop me, Superman. Don't drop me, I'm scared. And, and Superman looks down at this guy and he says, didn't I just rescue you from that burning building? What makes you think I'm going to drop you right now? As I think back upon that, as I said those words probably about six weeks ago, I think, you know what? I'm the guy holding on to Jesus who has just rescued me. And I'm wondering if he's going to drop me. I'm just wondering when. When is is he going to drop me? When am I going to see that? When is he going to realize that, man, my sin is still a struggle and I've fallen short of God's glory and I don't deserve his love? When is he going to see that? When is he going to see that I can't hold enough tightly on to him and then I'm going to lose my grip and he's just going to let me go? Like a lot of life is us really struggling to trust in the sufficiency of Christ. And hearing in the quiet, in the still small voice, the truth. When the lies are turned down, when the battering ram of Satan's deception and the world getting you to say enough of Jesus, I'm doing this on my own, and then we think we'll find freedom. I'm telling you, friends, a lot of people go that way, but the noise still is on God graciously assures us, I've rescued you from the fire. What makes you think I'm going to drop you right now? And so I was in the mountains of Colorado, um, 9,500 feet high. It's a place called Divide, Colorado. The little cabin I was in was called Eagle's Nest. And I was by myself for much of the time. Actually, I had a total of four days there. Of three of the days there, I had a counselor that was with me. And uh, this counselor, not a licensed counselor, just a, a man who has been in ministry, a man who continues to counsel and serve missionaries. Um, and 
I'd never met this guy before. How many of you are freaked out right now? It's like, oh boy, <laughs> I don't know how this is going to be. And, and I, I flew into uh, Col- Denver, Colorado. I drove two hours into this little place called Divide, Colorado. Before I got there, I got groceries and I was, you know, getting everything ready for the cabin and, 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 and my time. But the clutter was still in my heart and, and it was still going like a, a million miles an hour. And, and I'm sitting eye to eye with this counselor. He was really good at like just staring me in the eye. You know that really uncomfortable glare? He was really good at just staring me in the eye. And, and he did this devotional, and it was 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And I'm like, I preached that before. And he's like, okay, great. Well, maybe now you could hear it. <laughs> and it was talking about the comfort of God. And he said, he said, Ryan, where do you find comfort? I knew the church answer. I knew it. But I couldn't say it. He said, I don't know. He said, that's all right. He said, that's all right. Later on in our time, I was able to tell him, you know what? I think where I find comfort is when when I'm the father that I know I should be, I'm going to be comforted. When I'm the pastor, I know I should be, I'm going to find comfort. When I'm the husband, I know I should be, I'm going to find comfort. So my comfort is always something that I never get to experience now, but it's when I'm perfect. And God released me of that in that time. It was a good, good gift of his grace. So before I give you the rest of the sermon on the sabbatical, let's pray and get into Mark chapter 1, and you're going to see how God really speaks to us with this passage. Father, would you speak to us here as your beloved children? God, there's a good chance that my story resonates with everybody in the room today. thinking that somehow we have to prove it. We have to earn it. If we just work harder this year, then maybe we'll find comfort. Maybe we'll find refuge. Maybe we'll find the rest that we need. But Lord, Lord, you're so good that you offered to us right now. So I pray you would speak these words that you spoke over Jesus to us. God, we are your beloved sons and daughters with whom you are well pleased. And there's nothing in us and there's nothing outside of us and there's nothing that all hell can be thrown at us that will ever take that away. So Lord, that's truth and we need you to help us believe it by the power of your spirit. Would you speak through me May my words be yours. In Jesus' name, amen. Mark chapter 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I really love the 
variations of the gospel account. They're all different. doesn't mean that the gospel account is different. It means that we have a different vantage point to seeing the story of Jesus Christ. And, and if you read the gospel of Luke, which you, you might have read the, the, the narrative of the birth of Jesus. The, the story starts with the angel speaking to Zechariah and Zechariah not believing him. And then he goes mute. And then you hear that, you know, his... His wife is pregnant with this man here, John the Baptist. And then one of the other cool things about the, the, the beginning of the Gospel of Mark is, is, you know, you kind of put these things to get together a little later with the help of Luke and Matthew. But, but John and Jesus meet when they're in the womb together. Mary and Elizabeth both had words from angels and they both got together. And when Mary and Elizabeth get together, Elizabeth, Mary's sister, the, belly, the baby in her, in her womb, in her belly, leaps with joy because he meets the Messiah, the Son of God. And we see here that, you know, the big idea of all of the gospel of Mark is that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the ruling and reigning king. Jesus is the authority over all authorities. And the fact that Jesus came into Mary by the divine or the immaculate conception, he became flesh and dwelt among us. And he is thus heir to the kingdom. He is God's son. If you would have said that any manner of, any number of times in that, that time period, you would have been called a heretic of which Jesus was called. You would have been called a blasphemer of which Jesus was called. And Mark knows what he's writing, when he's writing it, because it's not that the heresy that the Jews were saying didn't exist anymore. It was that Mark was ready to speak truth to the power structures of his day, and he was saying, this is a gospel that's all about Jesus, the God who came down from heaven and became flesh and dwelt among us. Mark isn't writing the gospel about himself. Mark isn't writing the gospel about his mentor, the apostle Peter. Mark isn't writing the gospel about sinners. He's writing the gospel for sinners about Jesus Christ. I think in 2021, we need to rediscover this person, Jesus. I think in 2020, we need to discover afresh and anew his work in our hearts. I love the gospel narrative of, of Mark because it's written by a, a guy who uh, we see in the book of Acts was he abandoned the Apostle Paul. This is John Mark. He left the Apostle Paul on his second missionary journey. He came back. Paul and Barnabas were, you know, kind of getting used to the rhythm of life and ministry. And John Mark comes back. And then we see that there's this sharp disagreement between Barnabas and Paul. And Paul splits with Silas. And Barnabas splits with John Mark. And we see that even Paul didn't really know what to do 
with John Mark after that point of abandonment. Later we see that Paul and John Mark reconcile because of Paul's words to him. But you also see that John Mark took a place of being the assistant to the Apostle Peter. You know, the the rock on whom God said he was going to build his church, Peter, the authority of the apostles. Peter was kind of the chief among the apostles. John Mark was Peter's assistant. John Mark had a front row view to the accounts of Jesus through the lens of the apostle Peter. Make no mistake about it, Peter's words reflect Peter's journey with Jesus. In fact, if you want to hear an honest account of Peter's shortcoming and failures, you'll find no better place than what John Mark offers to us because it was Peter being honest about himself and Mark pinning those words in light of the redemption that Peter himself saw. So so Mark's gospel is this message of redemption, not only that Peter experienced and John Mark experienced, but it's a message of the gospel that you and I can experience. I'm convinced there's enough here in the Word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit to, to settle our hearts right now. I'm convinced that right now that God's Word and God's Spirit Speaking to us today is going to turn the volume down because God's going to tell us the story that's all about Jesus. And that's what the story of Mark is. And what is this gospel that Jesus preached and proclaimed? What is this gospel? This gospel of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. John 3.16 and 17 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Mark 10.45, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then here's the words from Jesus that we're going to unpack next week a little bit more. From Mark chapter 115, Jesus says, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. This is the message of the gospel. That God has fulfilled his promises of the old covenant. And he has made his promises known through the person and work of Jesus Christ to fulfill all of his plans and purposes. And that's not just a historical event in which Jesus came and he lived 33 years and he died on the cross and he rose again. That happened back then. That's an event that matters today for you and I. If we don't get this, then we live in the midst of a lie. Then we're going to be clobbered by deceit all around us. And so believing this gospel is oh so important. And that's why God prepared the way for Jesus with his Prophet John. 
preparing the way for the Lord, the forerunner. How did he prepare the way? Well, he prepared the way by repentance, by preaching the message of repentance. How do you prepare the way for the work of God to to move in your life? Well, it's repentance. And what is repentance? Repentance is acknowledging that you've broken relationship with God. That you've broken the holy law of God. That you've broken covenant with God. That you've walked in your own way. And repentance is turning back the other direction towards him. Repentance is realizing that, man, I've been going a different direction and I have to turn around. And that was the message of John the Baptist. Is that you have broken covenant with God. And the way to prepare for God's Messiah, Jesus Christ, is to turn back and look at God and trust in his Messiah. Mark 1 Chapter 1, verses 2 through 8, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. Now we have this narrative account, but I want you to visualize with me what this must have looked like prophet is preaching the gospel of the Messiah of whom he has not been publicly identified yet of whom he is speaking of the Messiah that people know the Messiah is coming the kingdom of God is in hand I'm called to repent but where am I supposed to go what am I supposed to do who am I supposed to trust in and John preaches this message of repentance and He's doing so in the wilderness, not in the temple courts, not in the middle of Israel, not in the middle of Jerusalem. He's in the wilderness out by the Jordan River. And you can imagine if you were driving there in a car today, and if we were kind of to transport this into our timeline, there would be cars all over the place. Instead, back then it was donkeys and horses, and there would be... uh, Thousands of people surrounding this man, John the Baptist, as he preached this message. Because Israel believed that this man was Elijah that had come back in flesh. Because Elijah just got swept up. He was the prophet that didn't die. And they thought, maybe John is that Elijah. But rather than John being Elijah, John was a prophet like Elijah. And John was a prophet like Elijah because John was telling the way of the Lord. And as he was telling the way of the Lord, large crowds gathered. And there's this line of people that are going into the water. And John is preaching the message of repentance. They're confessing their sins. And John just continually baptizes them. Baptizing them. Baptizing them. And then as John is baptizing these people in the wilderness, it's this preparation Not for the water going under the physical waters of H2O, you know, 
but the waters of the Holy Spirit. Later on, John says, I baptize you with water, but he baptizes you with the Holy Spirit. And I wonder, why did God use this kind of rugged wilderness man instead of the high priest to announce the coming of Jesus? Why was John the forerunner? Why why was this man who, you know, he had a beard, and I can imagine he had dreadlocks, and he was wearing just wilderness clothing, camel's hair, had a leather belt around his waist. His favorite snack was locust dipped in wild honey. He could go vegan. That was okay with him as long as insects counted as vegan. And, and, and he, he drew this incredible crowd. But why wasn't it the establishment of the day that recognized Jesus? You know, the establishment of the day that they wanted a Messiah. They did. They wanted a Messiah to free them from the occupation of Rome. They wanted a Messiah that would free them from this long, long, long time of oppression that they had been in. So they were waiting and they were watching for this political leader, for this political ruler that would make their world right, right? I mean, when you see the news that we went through last week, I can't help but think that we're a lot like them sometimes. That we want this kind of external king that's going to make everything right. And we think that somehow the world's going to be right if we just have the right person in political power. And so Israel was believing a lie. And so it wasn't someone that was from the inside. It was someone from the outside. And rather than doing it in the temple, he went out in the wilderness to say that that this same way that John came as a prophet is the same way the Messiah would come. Not from the inside, from the outside, but the Messiah would do a work from the inside out, which is exactly why Israel missed him completely. They didn't want a Messiah that would come and tell them that their hearts were wicked because they checked all the boxes, man. They had all the list accounted for. They had the diet, they had the ceremonial laws, they had the moral law. They were doing all the things right. And so it wasn't the religious elite that were out in the wilderness to hear John. Yeah, maybe they're checking up on his message and wondering when, you know, they're going to be able to bring charges against him. But they weren't there to get baptized. They weren't there to walk in repentance. What did they need to walk in repentance of? What they needed is someone to lead the charge against Rome. They didn't need a a, a moral lesson on how they weren't falling after God. I mean, they were the ones that were the chief examples of falling after God. And Jesus later confronts that as whitewashed tombs. He says, basically, in effect, you're a bunch of good-looking dead people to the Pharisees and Sadducees and all the who's who of Israel. I don't want to let this point escape us, this point of preparing the way for the Lord, because I was listening to a sermon by a man named Paul David Tripp, and he's, he, he preached this passage to 10th Presbyterian Church up in Philadelphia, storied church, church that God's used mightily. And he, he said these words. He said, let's be honest, brothers and sisters, that externalism when he says external, he's talking about this, this 
you're holy based upon what you do, that externalism is not dead. I would be so bold as to propose that perhaps that externalism still exists even in the confines of 10th Presbyterian Church. Oh, we can sing with such enthusiasm, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, and yet be an ungracious father and an ungracious husband. We can exegete the theology of the love of God and yet live selfish, me-oriented lives, stepping over human need and not being bothered at all. We can talk about the righteousness of Christ imputed to our account and that very weak look at internet pornography. We can talk about the reconciliation of God and be willing to live in broken relationships with brothers and sisters. We can talk about the sovereignty of God, but we try to move ourselves into control of situations and circumstances, and we worry all the time. You see, the heart of our faith must not be our theological knowledge. It must not be external Christian habits. It must be a heart that loves and worships the Lord Jesus and is ruled by Him in all situations, in all relationships of our daily life. We, we can be deceived, brothers and sisters, here at Cross Point Downtown. We could be so deceived to think we're falling after God because somehow we're here on Sunday, because somehow we sing the songs, because somehow we do our devotional. But yet our hearts have not been circumcised. Our hearts have not been baptized in the Holy Spirit. Our hearts have not been made aware of how much we need Jesus, not just to fix all the stuff so that everything gets better like I was like. And I still can be like, and I still will be like. But I need to fight that lie with the truth that Jesus desires this inward renewal in which he remakes me from the inside out. And the Pharisees were not willing to let Jesus be the Messiah of their hearts. Yeah, he could be the Messiah that defeats Rome and Rome's oppressor, but he could not be the Messiah that remakes their hearts and defeats the oppression of sin. And this is what Jesus came to do. Not to give us a little cleanup from the outside, but he came to renovate our soul. And that's what John was preparing for. Prepare the way for that. Prepare the way for the Messiah. And he preached saying, After me comes one who is mighty, who, he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not, not worthy to stoop down and untie. You know, you know, John saw his place before the Messiah. And as much as John was lifted up, as much as even we think that people of, of, of Israel or even some being baptized wanted to crown you know, John King, because they thought John was the guy. And John was saying, no, there's one that's coming after me that's mightier than I. And then he uses this cultural reference by saying, he's one whom I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie his sandals. He's saying that I'm, 
I'm less than the, less, the, the, the slave of the house. He says, I'm, I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. In those days, if, if you were a servant in the master's house, it would have been the lowest of servants that would welcome the master. And the master would have a seat. And then the servant or slave would untie the master's sandals. And then he would do the, grow, the grunge work of, of washing the master's feet. It was a dirty job, but somebody had to do it. And who had to do it? Well, it was the servant of the servants. It was the lowest guy on the totem pole. And John says, don't even put me there before him. Which we later understand why John says, I must decrease and he must increase. Because this is about one who is mighty. This is about God who is highly exalted and lifted up. And he says, I have baptized you with water. But he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, if you've been baptized, you know this to be true. You know this to be true. You've maybe gotten into the waters of baptism. And you know what you were baptized in? It was water. And if you were baptized here at Crosspoint, it was the water of the pool at the YMCA. Right? With hopefully just the right amount of chlorine. And and you came out. And what was that? That was this symbolism. It was this work. That God had done. It was you making a statement. A public declaration of your faith. That you believed that Jesus Christ has saved you. That you believe that Jesus has washed you with his waters. And that Jesus Christ has defeated death on your behalf. So that when you come out of that water, you are alive. But there's nothing magical about you going into the water. Now, I want to go into the waters of the River Jordan. And I actually, whether this is sacrilegious or not, I want to be rebaptized Because that would be amazing to be baptized in the waters of the River Jordan. Right? Let's just do a whole cross point plane and go there, socially distanced, of course, with masks on. And we'll go to Jordan River and we will get baptized together. But even in the waters of the, what, what, what many would call the Holy Jordan River, it's just water. It's just water. But what Jesus does is he baptizes us with the Holy Spirit, he baptizes us with God himself. You are plunged into the waters of this person, God, and you come out alive. That's a miracle. That's a miracle that Christ has paved the way for you and me to be a part of. Ezekiel eleven eighteen through 20 says this. This is a prophecy. And, I, and when they come there, they will remove from it all its detestable things and all its abominations. And I will give them one heart and a new spirit I put within them. I'll remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. Baptism of the Holy Spirit is nothing less than Jesus standing in our place and giving us himself through the person of the Holy Spirit. And now we look into the baptism, verses 9 through 11. As I came to this passage, I wonder, why did Jesus have to be baptized? 
Why did Jesus have to be baptized? I mean, he's perfect, isn't he? Why would Jesus have to get baptized? Why would Jesus have to go into this symbolic work of repentance? Because Jesus is perfect. Jesus doesn't have to repent. Only people that qualify for repentance is all the rest of the world, not Jesus. But yet Jesus entered into the waters of our baptism. Why? Not because Jesus had anything to confess. Not that Jesus had anything to repent of. But it was a work where Jesus stood in our place. He was in line just like everybody else. He might have had to get there at 5 a.m. like it was Black Friday and wonder if he could be in the presence of John the Baptist by 4 p.m. And Jesus kind of walked in the line with everybody else and then he stood before this sinner, John the Baptist, who was a sinner, his cousin. Jesus knew he was a sinner, his cousin, John the Baptist. And John the Baptist sees Jesus. We don't see the account here. We see that John and Jesus get into a little tussle there. And John says, I can't do this. Jesus, yeah, you're going to do it. So that all of the word of God is fulfilled. And what was the word of God that needed to be fulfilled is that the Savior would stand in the place of sinners. He went into the water of the Jordan. I read an article uh, just this past week about um, uh, public swimming pools. Um, And so how many of you have ever been in a public swimming pool? Anybody? Yes. Great. The beginning of this article said, you'll never think about swimming pools the same way again. And uh, here's a few facts about public swimming pools. Uh, Number one is pool water is not as clean as it looks. Uh, It is one of the most popular places to swap germs with 89 million people a year swimming in public swimming pools. The chlorine doesn't kill all the germs, and when lots of people are in the pool, it has a hard time keeping up, which makes you even more scared going to places like Aquatica and Typhoon Lagoon and all those other places where there's just thousands and thousands of people in the water. Um, Everything that's on a person, when they go into the water, everything that's on that person goes into the pool. Everything. Now, when I say everything, it's sweat, the dirt, the oil, the grime, the bodily fluids. When a person goes into that pool, everything else goes into that pool. So that means there's a legit amount of poop in that water. (laughs) In a typical public pool or water park, there are several pounds of feces that shed in the water by the end of the day. And most people, looking at you, accidentally swallow at least a little bit of that water. At least just a little bit. Come on. (laughs) Now, let's let's think about this this way. Jesus didn't just enter into the waters of our external uncleanliness. He entered into the waters of the smut that exists on the inside of every one of us. 
He entered into the waters where murderers confessed. He entered into the waters where adultery was confessed. He entered into the waters where blasphemy was confessed. He entered into the waters where you can confess your most horrendous sin. He entered into those waters. And what did he do? He stood in your place. He took your place in those waters. And it wasn't the water that was unclean for Jesus, but it was what he would enter into that was unclean for Jesus because he'd enter into your sin. He entered into your shame. He entered into your guilt. He entered into your rebellion. He entered into your covenant breaking. And what Jesus did when he was baptized was a foreshadowing of what he would do on the cross is that he would enter into the water of God's judgment of which any you or I would be dead on the spot. Jesus entered into those waters and he came out alive. And he entered into those waters not because he had to for him, But that is what was required as the perfect sacrifice for sin. And that's when Jesus says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of of God has come. Repent. Because Jesus went into those waters of God's judgment and came out alive. He saved us from God's judgment and he has given us everlasting life. Man, and this is the account. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. When he came up out of the water, imagine this. He came up out of the water and immediately he saw the heavens torn open. Immediately. This was before Jesus began any public work of ministry that's recorded. This is before Jesus healed any person. This is before Jesus fed the 5,000. This is before Jesus calmed the storm. This is before Jesus called the disciples. But yet, Jesus came out of the waters, and the heavens were torn open, and the thrice holy God is acknowledged. And the thrice holy God is acknowledged by the Spirit of God descending on him as a dove, And the father saying, this is my beloved son. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. The thrice holy son of God is the same one that Isaiah saw. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The thrice sinless substitute is the one that the book of Revelation echoes the same thing. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And as Jesus comes out of the water, you see not an affirmation that Jesus needed to see. I think Jesus knew everything about everything that he saw on that day, but I think Jesus saw what he saw, and it was recorded as it was recorded, by the way, in all of the Gospels, because we needed to see it. Because we needed to see how much God loves us in the Son. Because here's the reality of what happened when Jesus went in the waters and was given this affirmation from God. The reality is, is that the words 
You are my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Those words are not just words spoken to Jesus, but those words are spoken to all who are joined in Jesus through Christ. That you, today, in all of your sin and shortcomings of 2020 and the years and decades past, and all the sins and shortcomings that are going to keep coming this year, because they're going to keep coming, you are God's beloved son or daughter with whom he is well pleased. You know, I think about when I was up in the mountains of Colorado and I I had this pack of lies that I was believing. You're not good enough. 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 You're not enough. You're not enough. And, and when I, I, I sat there, it was one early morning as the sun was arising, and, and I had this verse in my head, and I thought, you know what? Jesus. Jesus is the one who allows these words to be mine. We all long for the affirmation of the Father. We've all got daddy issues. No matter how bad your dad was, and there has been some bad dads that have raised us, but we all long for the words of the Father that says, you are my beloved son or daughter with whom I am well pleased. And we long for that, and we work for that, and we try and strive for that, but God gives it to us, not in our doing, but in our being, and in our being, being a child of God who Christ has made us to be. And because he has made us a child of God in Christ, not on our effort, but through his sacrificial and atoning work, we have that truth. I'm going to close with a reading of this quote by Henry Nouwen. Henry Nouwen wrote a book called, I believe it was called The Belovedness of God. And he said, You have to keep unmasking the world about you for what it is. Manipulative, manipulative, controlling, power hungry. And in the long run, destructive. The world tells you many lies about who you are. And you simply have to be realistic enough to remind yourself of this. Every time you feel hurt, offended, or rejected, you have to dare to say to yourself, these feelings strong as they may be, are not telling me the truth about myself. The truth, even though I cannot feel it right now, is that I am the chosen child of God, precious in God's eyes, called the beloved from all eternity, and held safe in an everlasting embrace. That's what Jesus purchased for you on the cross. That's what God lovingly says to us today. God the Father says those words over you, church. You are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter with whom I am well pleased. Do you know what that means for us today? means that no matter what the world tells us, we have a truth that's greater than anything that the world tries to get us to prove and earn 
and live for. But we can live in the finished reality that through what Christ has done has made us children of God. And in a greater way that I even love my children, man, I love my kids. In a greater way than I even love my kids, God loves me. And he loves you. And it's, and it's not like it's just a little bit greater. It's far greater. And you can go into this year with that changing everything about you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. God, I thank you that your work for us stands today. It stands as the last word. God, there's not a greater word over our life that is more compelling or controlling than this. That we are your children with whom you are well pleased. God, it's because the work of Christ, it's because we're joined to him. It's because we've confessed with our mouth and believed in our heart that Jesus is Lord. Father, I pray for For those who might be here or even online that have wrestled with the reality of Jesus and may not have made that good confession that Jesus is my Lord. And feel like they're orphans. God, even as believers, we can feel like we're orphans. But Lord, help us know that joined in Jesus, in Christ, because he went into the waters of your judgment and he came out alive. We have with you the everlasting and eternal embrace of the Father. You're my beloved son, my daughter, with whom I'm well pleased. God, we honor you, we exalt you, we love you. Would you speak to us now, even as we worship in Jesus' name?